Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode three of StaffCast. Uh, we heard your complaints and less relievers this time. But as usual, I'm Richard Staff, and with me, as always, is Mr. Trevor Hildenberger. Hey, everybody. And Mr. Sean Doolittle. We're so back, baby. We're, it's never been less over. But this time around, we have two guests. And believe it or not, they've never been in a major league bullpen, which is a first for us. Uh, we have Kelly Candell, who's a filmmaker, teacher, writer, everything in between. Uh, you probably know the name most from A League of Their Own, which he wrote and became a movie. It was written about his mother. And hello, Kelly. Good to be here. And we also have bonus second guest, Peter Dreyer, who's professor and author and honestly from what i all of us read the other night pretty much right up our alleys and we're excited to have him here hello peter so me and sandy koufax are both bonus babies <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> all right so i guess from the start you you guys sent us some articles from both of you to read that you've written over the years together and apart and we've spent most of the last I don't know, 12 hours telling each other how good each and every one of them was <laughs> yeah yeah i really enjoyed it especially sean liked the one that was about him but even the ones that weren't <laughs> about him were good too that one's gonna be read at my funeral um yeah. For the, the listeners out there, uh, after I retired, Peter wrote a um, a, a very, very nice article um, about me and my career and, and my wife uh, as well uh, for the nation. And um, it, it was absolutely beautifully done. Um, so we can link that one in the, uh, in the description <laughs> yeah. of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, we'll link that at the top. <laughs> it was about it, it was it wasn't just about you and your career it was about what you stood for and what you spoke out against and how um outspoken you were on social issues where a lot of players in clubhouses that i experienced were either felt very differently about or were too scared to speak out about so i really enjoyed that summary i you know i i follow you on twitter i had seen those tweets but i had forgot a lot of them and i just really appreciated how consistent you were over your career Thank you. And thank you, Peter. Sure. My pleasure. Who's the next, who's the next current, you know, baseball most prominent leftist now, now that you're retired, Sean? I honestly don't know. Um, uh, the, the first one that, that came to mind was, is, is uh, Strider is pretty progressive. Mm -hmm. um, he, he's spoken publicly about, going vegan um, for environmental reasons. Um, he supported Bernie Sanders. Um, when he does dip his toe into those waters, um, he speaks very eloquently. You can tell he's well-informed um, and he knows what he's talking about. But um, I mean, he's still young, right? And and it, it took me a long time to feel comfortable enough in the league and with myself 
to be able to talk about these things on a regular basis. So, um, you know, uh, I, I, but, I, but I really, I really don't know. Um, and that, you know, one of the first articles that we read, um, was an article from all the way back in 2004 about, uh, the lack of athlete, um, activism that was going on during that time. Um, and it feels a little bit like, you know, the more things change, the more things kind of stay the same. Um, and I'm wondering for you guys as baseball fans, like, you know, we're heading into an election cycle. We just got out of a, a collective bargaining agreement with baseball, uh, major league baseball. Um, you know, but you know, what do you guys see the challenges being over the next, you know, even over the next course of the CBA, you're looking at, we have discussions about antitrust issues and, and that exemption with the, the A's trying to move to Las Vegas and MLB talking about expansion teams and, and that sort of thing. And, um, you know, we need to, your work is more important now than ever because we do have a lack of, um, you know, progressive ideals coming from within the game as players. Yeah, I think I think that was one of the things that we I think you might have been referencing the article where are the jocks for for justice and yes, it's some it's something that that Peter and I have kept an eye on uh, over the years, not just you know in baseball, but in but in every professional sport that that we are knowledgeable about and and where we follow the players. And I think you know our point in that that article is that you know, to some extent, you know, particularly in, in baseball, you can track the history of our country through the evolution of, of baseball, you know, certainly in, in racial relations and the movement West, the, the corporatization of, of baseball. So, you know, I think, you know, going forward, we're going to be looking for, for people and, and potential for, for those people to speak out in a very polarized world now. And I suspect that that the polarization that our country is experiencing gets reflected in in baseball too, because it's it's people from various backgrounds, various places, you know, all kinds of different beliefs and and values. And I think it's even more important and maybe even more difficult for for players to to speak out now with with without without the fear of being condemned you know, either by fans or by the owners or the media or, or what have you. So, you know, that's what I would be looking for. And then then how the, the technology uh, and increased corporatization has changed the game, whether it's analytics or or corporate power. So that's what I'm looking at. I also think that the um, the most likely people who would be willing to speak out in most of these situations are people that are already stars or at least in in a position where they can't be traded or or if they can't be traded they'll land somewhere because uh, they, they don't have the insecurity um, on the other hand they're the ones that make the most money and have the most commercial endorsements right and so there's always that tension tiger woods had that in, had that tension when he was a big star and he was speaking out about the racism of golf clubs, you know, of country clubs and so forth that kept African-Americans out. And then his agent basically told him, shut the hell up because, you know, 
you got to, you know, you're going to lose some of your endorsements. That's what happened to Billie Jean King when she came out of the closet and started talking mm -hmm. about political issues and she lost all of her endorsements. I mean, th that's changed quite a bit now for her, for, you yeah. know, but it's still a problem. And um, I think, you know, I, I wrote a piece a couple years ago that, you know, I, I, I asked a uh, major league manager who was, you, know, you think a, a gay player will ever come out of the closet? He says, I hope he's hitting over 300. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, because that's, you know, he, he sort of, I think, you know, rightfully recognized that it'd be harder to fire that person or put them in trouble. Right. So I think that's, and I think, and, and you know, the, the collective bargaining agreement should protect players' free speech from you know being harassed for giving for talking about their opinions but um and the you know the players union uh so far hasn't had to you know deal with that you know where somebody gets fired for their beliefs but at some point they're going to have to yeah that's, I, that's one reason why unions exist i 100 agree with both you guys i think and what sean was talking about that you didn't feel super comfortable talking about maybe political issues until you were established a little bit older. And as, you know, as players careers get shorter and within the last decade and people, a lot of players don't even reach arbitration or they don't reach free agency. They never yeah. get that financial security or that job security that allows them to be more outspoken or share their feelings. They're always feeling like they're fighting for a job or afraid of repercussions, no matter how actually protected they are by the union or by, you know, free speech. I think for a guy who has less than three years service time, it'd be very eye-opening to me and surprising to me if they were um, outspoken about <clears throat> maybe this upcoming election cycle or, you know, current events around the world. Um, but I think we need it. <laughs> I think baseball needs it. Um, and with Sean retiring, I hope that, um, I don't know, one or two people can step up and be like a uh, a leftist for for other people to root for. Yeah, I, that was one of the one of the differences now is that there are fewer African American players, and they've always been the most outspoken. Yeah, um, and I think uh, one of the most outspoken now is Mookie Betts. You know, yeah. he's got the advantage of being a you know a superstar. Um, and, you know, during Black Lives Matter, he was very outspoken. And uh, he produced a, a film that I was a talking head in about Jackie Robinson. It was, oh, really? Yeah. So, you know, and it was and it was and he and he understood that it was the radical Jackie Robinson, not the stereotype Jackie Robinson that people now have. That right. he, he, he was conservative. He was never conservative. But anyway, so Mookie Betts has been pretty outspoken. And, you know, and after, um, you know, after uh, George Floyd was murdered by the Minneapolis cops, every major league sport had, you know, protests and, you know, were, were out there, including the white, a lot of the white players, too. And, you know, I wrote about that in, in, in uh, my piece about Sean, where, Sean, you were, you know, I think were uh, also outspoken, but also wanted to make sure that your African-American teammates were the ones that were doing the 
speaking about that, but you were an ally and that was a useful thing to do. So good for, good for you for doing that. But even like, you know, Gabe Kapler and people like that were out there in support of Black Lives Matter when that yeah. happened. Yeah, the one of the interesting things that struck me um, in doing the article for the nation about organizing the the minor leagues was and it was a, and I think I thought it was a really key insight that you had Trevor in in the uh, interview that that we did with you and that you said something which I thought was a a great observation for an organizer at least in the context of of what you were doing and you said I don't whisper you know when I'm talking to people in in the behind the batting cage or in the dugout or on the bus I don't whisper and uh, it simply was a way of you telling the other people, we don't have to be afraid anymore, you know, because, it, you know, to your point about people being fear of losing their jobs, I I always thought that it, it would be, Peter, Peter's probably more optimistic than me about things in general, but I always thought that that it would be impossible to organize the minor leaguers because they had one goal, and that was to get out of the minor leagues. And anything that that they could do or might do that would jeopardize that goal, they they would avoid. So I I was you know pleasantly surprised uh, how that how quickly that happened and and uh, you know talking to Brizuela I think his name was who was organizing the the Latin players. Yeah, Jose. yeah. He said another thing that I thought was brilliant. He, he said we look for natural leaders and natural leaders aren't necessarily the people who are the loudest, but they are the people that other people follow. That's the definition of a leader. And um, <clears throat> I just thought you you had some really thoughtful and articulate people. Same thing when we interviewed the Dodgers, we went into the into the dugout before the game and interviewed Gavin Lux and, and Walker Bueller and even, uh, even Kershaw. And not one of them hesitated, you know, to say that this is a great thing, it's a good thing. It's good for the minor leaguers. It's good for baseball, and it's good for the union. So, pleasant, pleasant, pleasantly surprised at what you guys did. Yeah, uh, to be quite honest, I was shocked that we were recognized as quickly as we were, and then we got to bargaining when we did. Really happy about it. Obviously, thrilled that we were able to get a CBA done before the start of the season, and I think that we've taken massive steps for minor leaguers in terms of pay and housing and food and all these, um, all these investments in these people. And I think there's a, they have less um, need to get an off season job and there's less urgency and crisis in season in terms of um, being able to put food on the table and like buy diapers for their babies. But I think there's a long way to go. But yeah, I think um, when I was having conversations with those players before we, you know, sent out union cards, it was about the context in which I was engaging with them. I didn't want them to feel like it was a secret or that they should be ashamed or uh, afraid of repercussions. So when I had conversations with guys, it was like, I was just trying to inform them, Hey, this is what's going on. Don't you think we deserve more? Look at the last couple of years, you know, owners didn't want to pay us during the pandemic season. Um, if you look at the save America's pastime act that was slipped in the omnibus bill, like they don't even see this as a full-time job where part-time seasonal apprenticeships. Um, and so I wanted the guys to be all on the same page, have the same information, and then make a decision on their own whether they they wanted to be a part of this um, this movement or not. So 
Yeah, thanks. It was uh, one of the most rewarding things I've ever done in my life. And I appreciate you guys um, highlighting that in that article. And you inspired the United Oil Workers. Yeah, I don't know about that. But if you look at the labor landscape at large, I hope that that other players, uh, certainly when I started, I didn't understand my own place and like the labor landscape and the value I had as a worker. And I hope that players through unionization can look at, yeah, like United Auto Workers, UPS, um, Starbucks, Amazon, all the the labor movement at large and these pushes for more unions, um, they can see that and support that and show solidarity that a lot of um, hotel workers, um, big mm-hmm. one out in Vegas coming up for that Formula One race. But um, yeah, I don't know about Inspired, but we we did our best. One of the thing, one of the one of the questions that I have for you and Trevor and, and Sean is, when you've looked at these, you've mentioned all these recent strikes and struggles. You know the United Auto Workers, the the actors who just uh, reached a tentative ag- agreement, uh, all, all these different places. It even happens in Starbucks. But the issue of of technology and how technology has is impacting workplaces and uh, Peter and I wrote an article about this too, and it was about analytics. But I wonder how you guys uh, view this. I mean, we wrote it at, wrote about it as a way of somehow undermining uh, the salaries and longevity of players. You know that that it was there was something about it that was kind of similar to the the speed up in the. 19th century with with automation and and uh, you know increasing design of, of workplaces by by middle managers but I wonder how you guys perceive this uh, you've got the clock now you you know every team has got large analytics departments so you know what, what's your guys thoughts on that um, Sean you want to go ahead <laughs> um I'll start, um, and then Trevor, um, please piggyback off of uh, yeah, I got my thoughts, thoughts here. I, thoughts. I know, I know, I, and I think as relievers, we were uh, we were especially vulnerable to some of these some of these things. But the one thing that we see as players when it comes to analytics is, um, uh, and this is like the dirty side of analytics because I was a, I used analytics quite a lot in my career to help me try to maximize my performance, whether it came down to um, game planning and trying to break down opposing hitters um, or being critical of myself and trying to figure out where I had room to improve and where my strengths were. Um, the downside of analytics and the reason why players can still kind of cringe when they hear that word is that it, it kind of has reduced players almost to a formula or an algorithm where a player finally hits free agency, which is harder and harder to do now. The average career span is under four years. Um, 25% of players uh, only play a year in the big leagues. So reaching that sixth year of service time to finally reach free agency is a huge deal. And players are kind of reduced to this formula based on some of these predictive um, saber metrics uh, that they have now or past performance saber metrics um, as a reliever, especially um, the volatility of the position is factored in where 
you know, you might be, you might have a good year where you pitch 65 games and you have a sub three ERA, but they'll find something in there, your FIP or uh, your one of these other um, predictive analytics will say that it was, it was luck though. Like it was kind of lucky. Um, yeah. And you, you hear this when players go to arbitration, right? They, like they, they sit in a room with people from the team that tell them that, yeah, your performance looked good on paper, but when we break it down, like you're really not like where you see yourself. This is where we see you. Um, and so I think like if we're, if the goal of organizations is truly to win championships, um, the human element has to be factored in. Is, is this a guy that we can see fitting into our future because he has a good clubhouse presence. He's a leader. He um, <clears throat> he can learn. We can teach this guy's teachable. We can coach this guy. We think there's we see actually in these analytics that we can tweak this one thing here or there, and we can take this guy's game to the next level. Um, you, you know, how does he compete? Is he willing to take the ball? And can he give us can he give us those unsexy innings out of a bullpen that that really make the whole unit work? Um, yeah, yeah. you know, little things like that, that don't always get factored in, but that, that make a huge difference over the course of 162 game season. And as of now, there's no analytic that quantifies that, that, you know, a player can get paid for necessarily. Um, so like, <clears throat> and then you look at like biometrics where teams are tracking guys in the weight room, they're tracking guys on the field um we've made steps in this area through the, through our union um in, in the past few years where teams can no longer force a player to wear biometrics they can't um they're not they're not automatically privy to the results of those biometrics because what we were seeing is teams were looking at a guy and being like oh you're in the red today like you're not you're not recovering well your your body's not geared for maximum performance like you're not playing you're not even you know what you're not playing for a week and actually no extra work in the batting cage and you need to scale back in the weight room and it's like okay well the answer to that should be like how do we get this player to recover better can we teach him about sleep hygiene can we teach him about nutrition can we teach him um, about, you know, managing workload. Like that's a part of being a professional athlete, especially a big leaguer. You're playing 162 games over a course of 190 days. So yeah, you're going to be in the red sometimes. <laughs> like that's just how it works. Um, but that's the biggest thing that I think we see as players. Um, it's all part of the same mindset that kind of reduces players. Yeah. You see, you see when they come to free agency now, you see a lot of guys getting very, very, very similar offers oftentimes within like a week span of each other um, because they've been boiled down to, it's been boiled down to numbers so that organizations can work more, I don't know, efficiently or uh, in line with whatever McKinsey told them they should do. Yeah. It's funny because, you know, Brad Osmus told us when we interviewed him about this, he says sabermetrics or analytics can't tell you anything about a person's character about the chemistry in the locker room, uh, about their will and stuff like that, which, you know, we're sort of, you can't, you can't quantify those things. Yeah. yeah I, mean, I, I mean, yeah. Yeah. My brother played 10 years in the major leagues and he was, you know, five, nine and one sixty five. you know, and I talked to him about this and I, he said, he said, I, I'm not sure that today 
given analytics that that I would even make it that I would be I would be brought up you know so uh yeah I mean it's 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 pretty clear what's what's you know what they're missing yeah I, I jumping off that I I do think one of the more sinister parts of technology in the game is wearable technology and teams being able to track um your heart rate and your recovery and not give you that data i think sean's right we have made steps in terms of players we get a copy of all that data if they choose to wear that technology something on your wrist or a ring or an armband um and everything in the game wants to be quantified right you want to be able to quantify stick have somebody throw a bullpen wearing these little sensors and dots and you can track their biometrics and how they move if they move inefficiently you know they're their plant foot ankle eversion is poor, which puts more stress on their hips, which is why they have lower back problems. And actually they shouldn't be a starter. They should be a reliever because if they throw over a hundred pitches, they're putting themselves at risk for injury. And so this data that's affecting players' careers and affecting the game at large is not, is not something that's like a perfect one-to-one correlation. Like you were saying, you can't, um, quantify character chemistry momentum um performing under pressure just being able to handle adversity and like when you're tired in october and you're exhausted and you need to make a pitch not eight out of ten times or nine out of ten times one out of one you need to make a pitch or hit the ball right here right now and that is something that it's a game played by humans and whether or not MLB enjoys that fact or the league enjoys that fact that it's played by humans. It is. And the human factor that Sean was talking about when players get worn out or stressed, I think they need to have the resources to be able to recover and put themselves in the best position possible. And remember that these players are human um, and not just data points. They're not just um, interchangeable pieces of, of data. Um, speaking of of um, you know, the the human side of things, um, I want to. Um, I thought um, Kelly, I want to I want to go back to um, one of the articles you wrote. Um, you wrote about your mother. Uh, Gas money was the title of the article. Yeah, we'll link it. We'll link it to this and. Um, uh, because I think people should read it. It was one of the most beautiful, beautifully written pieces I, I may have ever read. Um, and I want to talk about, I want to talk about women in baseball um, because, you know, y- you, you wrote the documentary uh, that inspired the movie League of Their Own. Um, and in here in, in Washington, DC, where I live, um, there's an awesome outlet for girls to play baseball called DC girls baseball. They have a travel team called the DC force. They're awesome. Um, they, my wife and I hosted them at Nats park several times. Um, have you, have you continued to follow the growth of, of girls baseball? And do you see that as an avenue for, for baseball to continue to grow the sport? Yeah, well, yes. I mean, I, I, I follow, uh, women's sports in general, you know, I love watching uh, women's uh, soccer, what the rest of the world calls football. And, <laughs> and I like I like watching uh, women's baseball, softball, mostly in, in college. And uh, I think as much as growing the sport, 
I think more importantly, it's it's growing the the culture, you know, the the culture of women's uh, position and place in in our society. You know that uh, I when I was growing up, there was something called Title IX, and and Peter has written about this and in, in his book, in his books, and Title IX was it was a political. Uh, as well as a cultural uh, achievement, and what it meant was that you can you, essentially is that you can no longer ignore us, that you can't ignore us in high school. Women, I'm talking about, who want to play sports, who want to be in athletics, who have just as much drive and competition and talent uh, in the, in their respective sports as 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 men do. So that's the way I sort of see it. Looking looking back, that that the movie was a was a great uh, personal. Um, you know, not, not achievement for me, but, but but a personal experience. You know, mostly because it honored my mother, but uh, and all these other other women. But what it said culturally was that, hey, do you have talent that you want to express? Let's do it. Let's 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 create a society that allows that to happen. And that's and that's what politics is about. And that's what po- power is about. And that's what you know changing uh the images of our culture is about so yeah i mean i th- i think the 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 longevity of the interest of of the movie and that you know they made two two television series about it was is is simply that i mean it was it was entertainment but it was also saying something broader about what was happening in, in our society and and that's the most gratifying thing you know that if young if young girls see that movie and say i want to play and there's a place for them to play that's a, that's a tremendous advance in in society i think you know every think, year sorry go ahead no go ahead peter uh every year when i teach my classes i always ask the students i ask the women in the class usually about half the students are women how many of you played uh varsity sports in high school and you know 30 years ago maybe you know, a quarter or less would have raised their hand. Now, almost all of them raise their hand, like 75, 80%. And then how many of you are playing here in college? And about a third of them are playing varsity sports in college. And that's reflective of what's happened ever since Title IX, which is the the number of, of uh, women that are playing in high school and in college, and even in Little League or, you know, or AYSO soccer has dramatically increased since Title IX. And so then I asked the students, like, who is Billie Jean King? And hardly any of them know. No. And, and and what's what's good and bad about that is that they take it for granted now that they should be allowed to play sports. It's their right. On the other hand, they don't realize that they're standing on the shoulders of these incredible people, including Kelly's mom. Right. And if you don't know your history, then you don't know what 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 struggle it took to get to where they can now take it for granted. And so, you know, I think that the fact that these, you know, last year there was that HBO uh, series about, about uh, League of Their Own, the new version of League of Their Own, um, is now, you know, reminding people that it was a struggle. And, you know, and there was a film about, um, there was a film about uh, Billie Jean King on TV a couple of weeks, a couple of months ago. And, I think that's important because if they don't understand that, then uh, the next generation won't appreciate that there are other struggles to come and you can overcome them 
if you if you fight and if you win yeah. and you can win. So I think that's that's important. And Kelly's mom and all the other women that were part of that that league, they were among the generations that they pushed for title title nine. I mean, a lot of the a lot of the women who were involved in that league went to college and became gym teachers and became uh, teachers in general and became athletic directors at colleges. And they were that generation, you know, that pushed for the passage of Title IX and then to get it implemented. And that, that, to me, that was an interesting finding about that cohort of of women like Kelly's mom. The, the other, I think this is a question I have for you guys because, you know, the other part of it is is just the nature of of history. When you look at American history, sometimes you discover things that were that were hidden. And this was one of those things that was was hidden and, you know, serendipitously, you know, uh, happened upon it because it was part of my own family. But I guess, you know, you I see Trevor and Sean, you know, I see you guys as kind of ideas people, you know, in a in a in a world that sometimes uh, does not reward that kind of thing. You know, you're, you're you guys are studying, you're looking at our culture, our history, what's going on in the world and and expressing yourself and making discoveries. So I don't know, I, I'm more I'm kind of curious about how you have negotiated that in your in your athletic lives uh, in those 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 spaces where it can be very uh, difficult and filled with with tension. You know, I wonder how, how you you grapple with that. I don't want to jump in too much, but before we move to that uh in kelly in one of your stories about your mom you wrote about when you were a kid they had i think it was called the powder puff game correct yeah where the mothers got to play and they treated it sort of like a sideshow like oh look we're gonna let the women try and pick up a baseball and your mom as the former batting champion and you said a swing like ted williams everyone was astounded it's like oh Oh my God! Well, how'd she do that? You're like, oh, she played. It's like, yeah, I know softball, but how'd she learn to play baseball? It was like, no, she played baseball. And to be at a point now where, imagine telling someone like, yeah, we're going to take a bunch of moms and we're going to use them as a circus act and see if they know how to play sports. Yeah, yeah. in such a relatively short period of time, like Peter said, most of these. 75, 80% of students he has are playing some varsity level sport. And I think at least partly your writing and your movie hopefully had some role in making that possible. Yeah. I mean, I, I guess, you know, reflecting on it again, I I guess the academic word or the jargon is things become normalized, you Mm -hmm. know, that, that thing, things which were seen as exotic, or subversive in the past uh, become become accepted, and and that's how cultures change, and and how history changes through through those kinds of things. So you know maybe that experience, uh, perhaps I'm being more grandiose than I should be, but you know maybe that experience of seeing these these fine athletes on on the field back in the early 1970s, these women that you're supposed to laugh at, and then you become amazed by, is is a shock you know, to the consciousness. So yeah, I think, I think that's, that's pretty, pretty interesting. Yeah. I I just didn't want to miss out on mentioning that because it was, it was one of the funniest things in any of the stories 
you write yeah, about yeah, yeah. everyone's amazement that not only did she know how to how to hold a baseball, but <laughs> she was good at it too. You know, the the answer to your original question is about, you know, about baseball and women today is that there are a lot more opportunities for women to play both softball and baseball in high school, in college. And even there are professional women's baseball teams now. And there's this um, group that a woman named Justin um, Siegel started a couple, about a decade ago to train high school and pre-high school girls uh, to play baseball you know, regular baseball. And they have uh, conferences and tournaments and there's teams. Uh, and uh, there's about, I think, eight or nine women now that are playing on varsity uh, college teams. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the first Division One, uh, Brown University has the first yeah. woman playing Division One baseball on the, on the most, on the otherwise all male teams. But more than that, there are, you know, lots of both baseball and softball amateur leagues all over the country, you know, that are that are, you know, not pro and none of them are ever going to be even semi-professional. They just like to play baseball. They're, it's it's sort of a step above a pickup game. There's leagues, you know, it's and and you know, every Saturday or Sunday where I live, you can see women playing softball. And in some places, if you look you can see them playing baseball. And that would have been unthinkable, you know, 30 years ago. Yeah. I I hope that baseball continues to grow <clears throat> and women continue to play because it's such an enjoyable sport to play. And I think so much less enjoyable to, to watch on the sidelines. I know, like, I love watching baseball, but the real enjoyment I get is out of competing. And I think it's a beautiful game to to participate in. Um, yeah, I was just talking to my friend about the first D1 baseball player at Brown University, a lefty pitcher. I think it, the first woman to play in the major leagues will be a lefty pitcher. And I think she'll have a nasty cutter. And that's like left, a By lefty, you mean they throw left-handed or they have left-wing politics? <laughs> I'm sure. I'm yeah. sure lefty in, in all senses of the word. We um, love our lefty right. pitchers, don't we, folks? Yeah, we love <laughs> Um, uh, um, and I, I know like like to bring this kind of full circle um we had talked earlier you guys have written about you know lack of athlete activism at times um throughout our our sports history um i, I think i do think as we're on the topic of women in sports it's important to note that the women um in professional sports um today are uh, significantly more outspoken and more yeah. progressive than their, their male counterparts, which I think is super noteworthy because they have a lot more to lose than we do. They're constantly criticized because, um, you know, they, when they bring up um, pay, pay disparities, you know, about how their leagues don't make enough revenue and they, they don't really deserve to be paid as much as men. Or the other time people pay attention to women's sports is when, um, they bring up trans issues in sports and then people pretend to really care about the sanctity of women's sports just for a, a talking point in, in the culture war. Uh, but we have here in D.C. again, we have Natasha Cloud plays for the Washington Mystics um, and she's out front on every single issue, um, uh, social justice, um, 
and I mean, to me, she, she's an inspiration. Um, she does catch some, some backlash for some of her beliefs, but you, you, she knows what she's talking about. Um, she's strong as hell. Um, but you look at the women in, in the, in the WNBA, you look at the women in, in the NWSL, like, um, they are, they are actively promoting more inclusive versions of their sports. Um, I think they do realize what it took to get to this point for them, how, how many women, uh, had to sacrifice and fight for, um, them to be able to play in professional sports leagues. Um, so I, I did want to, I did want to point that out because I think it's important to note that in, in this area of athlete activism, the women are, are way ahead of the men right now. Yeah. Yeah. Megan Rapinoe was like, you know, a culture hero. Yes. Yeah. And she was. Yeah. And for, for me, that's why I like the, that, that women's national team was, was, was so much fun to root for. Um, because as they were, as they were playing the world cup, they were actively trying, they were actively fighting for better pay. And at the time, especially, um, when you thought about U S national soccer teams, you thought about the women, like they, they were, they were growing the sport. They were, their faces were on commercials. Um, they were, they were out front and, and helping to grow the game. And they did it while being unapologetically outspoken. Um, and we were lucky enough to have a couple of them visit, um, the nationals game to throw out the first pitch, Ali Krieger and Ashlyn Harris came and, I was so excited to meet them because like it was, it, it was to me, like it was such a huge deal. I have so much respect for them and um, for everything they've done for their sport. Great. I want two things I wanted to say. Um, do one, do you guys think that that is the, the fact that women athletes are so much more active and outspoken partly because they are asked these questions by the media that maybe cisgender, white, straight, male Americans aren't asked. I think it's exemplary in Formula One. There's 19 white drivers and there's one black driver. And anytime a political or social issue is raised, he's asked about it. The black driver's asked about it and no one else. And I think it ties to your article, you guys' article about Steve Garvey and how he was like Mr. Clean when he played with the Dodgers. And now, and then he had a bunch of issues with money and extramarital affairs and he's running for California State Senate. And I'm curious how the media will treat him. I know you, got, you guys mentioned he got preferable treatment when he was a player. Um, and I just think that that's, that does play a huge role, is how the media treats you, what questions you're asked, and how you, you're expected to answer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think he's going to have a, a rough time of it. He'll, he'll get more attention than maybe someone who has uh, worked in the political field to get to a place where they feel like they're experienced enough on policy and so on to run f- for Senate. So obviously great advantage because of, because of celebrity. But uh, I think it, with, with our media out here, they already have, you know, been pretty, pretty tough on him, you know, asking him, well, what are your, what's your, who did you vote for, you know, for president, mm-hmm. you voted for Trump twice. You know, what, what's your position on crime, on this, on that? So I think uh, he's got both advantages and uh, vulnerabilities, you might say. But, you know, I think I think it we should always be looking at sort of the broader question. And, and that is, 
how is it that politics has been turned into a kind of celebrity show? <clears throat> you know, which is the bigger question of our of our culture. You know, a kind of uh, uh, a kind of rottenness at the center of it. You know, which was most uh, prominent with with what has happened with with Donald Trump, obviously. So I think that's the the bigger question. You know, how is it that we've become, or seemingly, uh, I'm ex I'm exaggerating, generalizing, but become a nation where where being famous and being a celebrity is more important than whatever particular stand you have on some complicated issues and and the future of our of our country. You know that to me is is more worrying. You know how how that has taken place, and what and what we can do about it. And part of it is social media and so on, but um, the the inability to determine what a fact is, you know, yeah. or what or what or what science is, that that is the is is the more troubling thing, I think. Or what you know, just what what has actually happened in the past? I think it's already yeah. in human nature to forget, but there's so much white noise and there's so much content that people are absorbing every single day that they don't remember what happened last year, what a politician, you know, what stance they had on something six months ago versus what they're saying now. Yeah. And now they just blatantly lie that, no, I never did that or said that or voted for that or exclude it. And it's so hard for people to remember or decipher, um, you know, what's true. I think, yeah, yeah I think we're at a, a, a bad place. I mean, you, you know, you guys are athletes, professional athletes, and you know, I'm more, of, I'm more or less a First Amendment guy about this stuff. That that you know, people are going to watch this podcast and say, well, what about the, what about if you say something that's conservative? You know, you're going to get condemned. And, and and I'm like, hey, if you say stuff, you're going to have to defend it. You know, whether whether you're 100%. conservative, you're liberal, or whatever. You know, as long as you are are willing to stand up in front of people and say, this is my belief, and this is why I believe that way then you've got then you're you're on equal footing i mean you know we're not saying i don't think peter and i ever said you know people that have conservative views should shut up we we just said that if you're if you're liberal or a leftist and you express your views you shouldn't be condemned you know mm -hmm. uh, just because you're a professional athlete doesn't doesn't oblige you to to keep your mouth shut so um which is you know happened to to uh LeBron James, you know, just dribble or what, whatever it was that they said said to him. Yeah, shut up and dribble. You know, shut up yeah. and dribble. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, that that was, I guess, more or less our our point. But Peter you know, Mark. both of you guys are well informed about stuff, you know, and you read. And I remember during the COVID thing when the when the the, team, the MLB tried to get you guys to you know to go back to work before it was safe, and and Sean, I remember your your tweets about this um, and some of your quotes in the press were they were informed by what what the CDC was saying about health statistics and so forth. I mean, it was you know you were clearly doing your homework and you know and and you know Trevor, you're well educated and you understand what's going on. Celebrities have as much right as anybody else, and athletes are celebrities to voice their opinions um, and. Uh, the responsibility is to be well informed. So I'd vote for either of you over Steve Garvey. <laughs> he doesn't know anything, right? That's a low Maybe, bar. You know, it's a pretty low well, yeah. But you know, a lot so when people say that, you know, athletes or actors or you know, or musicians and singers shouldn't have opinions about stuff, 
you know, they're all entitled to use their opinion. I love it that Bruce Springsteen is out there all the time on behalf of different uh, issues. But he, he pays attention. He, he learns about stuff. He's not just talking off the top of his head. So that that's the responsibility people have. And when, you know, and most right wing celebrities, you know, they 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 don't know anything except except these uh code words. Right. The you know? buzzwords that they use. I think yeah. I think baseball fans will remember Anthony Bass last year putting out some or retweeting, you know, reposting on his Instagram story some um something about their their Pride Night in Toronto. And uh, like Kelly said, it's not it's not like shut up, don't share your views. We don't want to hear from you ever again. It's like once you put your ideas and your thoughts and your feelings out into the public sphere, the public is going to respond. Yeah. And you're going to have to stand up yeah. and and respond to that. And I think um, a lot of athletes, <clears throat> wherever they fall on the political spectrum, are afraid of that. And they, they just have so much like – Life is hard enough already. I think if they right. have the the luxury of not being able to speak on social justice issues or anything of the sort that they will, mm -hmm. maybe they'll just like, you know, I come to work, I'm under a lot of pressure to perform in general. I'm, I'm new here. Yeah. Let me just focus on my job. Let me yeah. just take care of my family and yeah. not be a social leader. Or And I think that um, women athletes and black athletes and a lot of time Latin athletes don't have that luxury. And so they have to be well-informed earlier in their careers That's and understand. Yeah. So I want yeah. to ask you guys a question. So, you know, when, when I'm being interviewed about my books, people say, isn't baseball more conservative than football or basketball or soccer? And, um, and, and I think that's true. I think there are fewer outspoken athletes in, in pro baseball than some of the other sports, except maybe hockey, which is probably equally or more conservative. And so, you know, they answer the question is why. And one of the things I've said is some, some sociologists did this study about three years ago. We looked at the Twitter uh, handles and uh, <laughs> biographies of um, athletes in the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, and Major League Baseball. And he found that baseball players were more likely to refer to the Bible and to Christian thoughts. And and I've always thought, you know, there's this whole thing with players rounding the bases and, you know, doing looking up at the sky with their uh, fingers in the air, which, you know, originally was, you know, I think thanking God for giving them the strength to have a home or whatever. But um, and I know there are these, you know, groups of athletes that meet in the you know, before games and in between games for prayer prayer meetings and stuff like that. Do you do you agree with that idea that baseball has more of a evangelical group of people within it that makes it harder for both gay players to come out of the closet and um, for players to be expressive on progressive liberal views, or is that you know is that just a silly observation? No, I think that's spot on. I think. Um, baseball being deemed America's pastime and it's kind of uh, interwoven with with um, I, I don't know this, these images of like um, the natural and just like good old 
Americana farm boy, Americana like traditional, yeah, old, yeah, exactly. Good old family farm boy who, you know, works hard and pulls himself up by his bootstraps and um, plays the game the right way. And there's no right way to play the game. First of all, I, I hate that saying. I despise it. I think that there's no right reason to play the game. You can play for whatever reason or however you'd like it. Anyways, um, but yeah, I do think that the baseball and right-wing conservative evangelicals are are intertwined. Obviously, I've only spent time in baseball professional clubhouses, and I think not basketball or, or um, football, but I also think the um, demographics of baseball are, are different. I think um... – I, like I, like Trevor said, I can't really compare it to being in other sports locker rooms. Uh, but like my experience with it was like, um, I think you have to break it down. If you break it down, like sociologically, you look at it and you see the game has become, the reality is it's become whiter over the last 25 years or so. Um, we're, there aren't as many black players in the league and, and the other players are Latin American. Um, but you look at the baseball hotbeds in the United States and where are those players coming from? They're coming from Georgia. Texas, Florida, Georgia. Um, they're coming from, you know, so parts of Southern California, um, Arizona. Um, and <clears throat> so I think you look at it that way. I think that starts to inform how it, the mindset of some players is uh, I also think like it just in general, like in, in, in any sport, really, like if you're, if you're good enough to play in the major leagues or whatever the top level of your, of your sport is, you've probably been at the top of your food chain since you were, I don't know, in middle school, at least like you were probably mm -hmm. the best you were pro So that probably gained access and entry into the popular kids club in high school. You probably were never bullied. You probably skated by uh, and never had to deal with the pressures and anxieties that come with being a teenager. You don't have that vulnerability. You've never had that vulnerability before. Um, you, you know, you go to college or you get drafted. If you're lucky enough to get drafted, you probably get a decent chunk of change right out of high school or college. And it's like, I did it like other people should be able to do it too. Like, I don't know what people are complaining about. Like I worked hard and like Trevor said, that good old Protestant work ethic of pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. And it's like, yeah, but think about this, man. Like how much did your parents sacrifice for you and, and how much time and money did they give up? What about your coaches? What about all the lessons that you took? What about, what about all the, the, the fields that you played on? Like who, who pays for that? Who takes care of that? You know, like you didn't do it by yourself. None of us got here by ourselves. Like you're kidding yourself if you think that. And so I think that's kind of baked into the mindset. Um, you know, I, I think when I think about progressive teammates that I've had, um, they're usually ones whose careers were alter, altered in some dramatic way by injuries or um, maybe something happened to their family and it changed their perspective on life and the opportunity that they now have. Um, uh, I think you do see this with a lot of minor league players who saw baseball as the ticket to get their family out of poverty and maybe give them a better life, maybe in America. Um, and, but there's other players that 
this is just how it was always supposed to be for me. I was supposed to get to the big leagues, you know, mm-hmm. and I don't know what people are complaining about because yeah. if you work hard, you can do anything. And, and so like, it was also my experience though, when talking to players about some social issues, you, maybe I'd put out a tweet, maybe I'd meet with a group uh, on the field before the game or something like that. And, or, you know, inevitably, especially around the, the 2016 election and early in Trump's uh, term in office, um, there were some political discussions going on and talking about social issues. And then around 2020 um, with um, the George Floyd protests and Black Lives Matter, um, it was always interesting to me how if you could engage with, with a player eat one-on-one or in a small group and talk about – this is why – to Peter's point, I think it's so important that people need to learn their history um, because like, if you know the history of how we got to this point as a country and as a society, um, you're better equipped to handle what we're seeing now. History doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. And I think that um, when I was able to have these conversations with players, a lot of times it was like, they were looking at me like deer in the headlights, like, almost like a light bulb moment goes off because like they didn't know, they don't know these things. They was never, it's not taught in schools. Right. And they, and they might not get it at home. And it's like, um, it, it's like they never knew that before. Or like you could tell that they started to have more questions about it and it started to maybe make sense or they saw it at least in a different light. And so I don't know, like if I was ever to actually like change minds or anything like that, but I was able to bring, context into things and explain why they matter and and how we got to this point and you can see the gears start to turn that's great yeah but i think like we also need more players from new jersey yeah you 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 mentioned bruce springsteen earlier and i don't know if you saw me fist pump um (laughs) well I'm, i'm from new jersey too so what part of new jersey are you from plainfield Oh, okay. I'm I'm from South Jersey. That's almost a different state, but yeah. um, okay. I I to to that point about about knowing your history, Kelly. I think to go all to go back a little bit, you had asked a question about me and Trevor about yeah. you know understanding our 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 um, I guess responsibility maybe or our position and and how we came to terms with that and how it informed our views and stuff like that and. That's why I enjoyed Peter. You you had you wrote two beautiful articles. One about um, uh, one about Jackie Robinson and the the radical civil rights advocate that he a- actually was, um, and Roberto Clemente about how he used his celebrity status, um, especially as a Puerto Rican celebrity, um, you know, to to advocate uh, for a lot of different things and help a lot of different people. Um, so knowing, so for me, like Kelly, to answer your question, like knowing that, knowing the history of baseball and the, the people and the players in it, to me, that was inspiring. And that showed that there was a precedent for, for players to speak out about certain issues. And I, I always found it fascinating um, the way that we celebrate Jackie Robinson every April 15th, rightfully so. Um, but we've never, as a sport, we've never grappled with or reconciled the treatment of him as a player and as a person and who he was as a civil rights advocate. 
Um, and I think so much about like how these players would be perceived in the game today um, with how polarized everything is and how politicized everything is. I think those, those players are example of how sports are inherently political. Like they always say to like stick to sports and keep the politics out of sports. Yeah. But like, I think they, especially those are two examples um, that, that highlighted like how political sports really are, especially I learned from your article, Peter, that w- Roberto Clemente, the, the tragic plane crash where he lost his life trying to bring aid to um, people in Nicaragua who are affected by a hurricane, that the reason the plane went down is because the U.S.-backed dictator Somoza in Nicaragua was skimming relief aid, relief aid that Clemente had organized. He was skimming it off the top and making. And there are two hundred fifty thousand people that lost their homes. He's skimming it off the top, and it's not getting to the people that need it the most. So, what does Clemente do? He hires his own plane. He charters his own plane, and it's probably not a plane that was equipped to move that many supplies. It was overloaded and and crashed and i like that never gets told when you talk about Roberto clemente like um at least not about in the, the wildcat strike in 1968 yes after where, assassination. after mlk's assassination where he gets his teammates on board uh not only are they not going to play the first game he said we're not going to play the second game either because that's the day of the funeral and there's going to be people and players that want to watch the funeral and it forced the commissioner to delay the yeah. start of the season by by two by two games. Yeah, like, incredible. I had never learned that until I read that within the last twenty four hours. Absolutely incredible. And Clemente also was the one that persuaded the executive board of the players' union to support Kurt Flood. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's right. I did not know he had such an instrumental role in that. And uh, I think as a as a huge Kurt Flood fan. <laughs> like uh, the the union has done a pretty good job of educating players on Kurt Flood's story and and the struggle and the sacrifices that he made so that we could have free agency. But um, I also think the solidarity from one of the game's biggest stars um, should be a, a part of that. Not to take anything away from Kurt Flood, but it was because of the solidarity that Clemente fostered that you know it helped it it, it helped the union back Flood enough to. Um, ultimately get us to a point where we have free agency. Yeah. Yeah. The other, the other observation I was, I guess, getting at is, is the relationship between fans and uh, athletes, professional athletes, because, you know, I, I, I watched it a lot when my, when my brother was playing, it's, you know, there's, it's, it just seems like there's all kinds of projections that go on you know, from, from fans towards professional athletes, you know, part of it is adulation. Part of it, they, they feel like they can go and, and, and criticize and, and condemn and, uh, you know, boo if they want, that's the right, right, obviously. But, but I've always been sort of fascinated by that dynamic in, in particular with, with people that are sort of out, outspoken, you know, that, that all of this stuff that goes on in games, with with fan, I mean, you know, actors—they're entertainers too, right? You're entertainers on some level, but also but also warriors. I mean, actors aren't out trying to defeat another actor. You you guys are out there trying to <laughs> yeah. defeat another team, you know. Uh, and nobody goes to the theater and, and yells at at Tom Hanks or or Tom Cruise that they stink, you know. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> but but the, but the nature of, of of being a being it being a public place uh i just i just always fascinated by by what people who are at the top of their field feel like given that situation where where you're so exposed in a way you know it is eye-opening to me um when i first made my debut how much of a blank canvas i was for people to kind of project their I don't know, hopes and dreams on, or for me on, like what I should be doing, how I should be uh, attacking hitters. And Sean might speak better to this because he was uh, reached a higher profile than me, a couple of all-star appearances, your bet. Uh, I think the relation, my relationship with the fans was always pretty straightforward. Um, nobody really, I, only a couple of times had people approached me in like a negative way that one of them was a gambling addict who had lost $25,000 on a game that I blew. And I said, you bet $25,000 on the twins versus the Royals. And knowing that I was closing that game, that's a decision that you made that's probably not going to work out. But um, for the most part, fans have always been really supportive. And I guess in a certain way, idealistic, they want me to have all this success and they want me to stay with the team that I'm currently at always, you know, and lead us to a world series title. And I think that that is the dream of every player on every team that they're on. So fans and players are, are intertwined. They're all pulling towards the same goal. And when you fall short of that goal or you you look like you're underperforming and the fans turn on you, people who were supporting you and now see you as a, an obstacle to their success or their enjoyment of the game. Like uh, I really watch, like watching the twins play, but Hildeberger is pitching again and he's bad. And that, that takes away from my enjoyment of watching this game. Like I felt a responsibility at the time to like perform well for these people. You don't want to let the fans down. The first and foremost, you don't want to let yourself and your teammates down. Obviously you want to win the game, but you start to feel this responsibility on your shoulders of the community. And so I totally understand when people do have success and they win a championship that like, this is for the Dallas Fort Worth Metro area or whatever the owner said afterwards, uh, that, that the fans <laughs> can enjoy. Yeah. You remember that? Yeah. <laughs> enjoy the, the success of the players on the field. I think that the, it's such a unique feeling to be, I never thought I'd experience that, but I did experience like the pressures of a, of a you know 12-year-old kid in Minneapolis. Wow. Can this I, is something I... that that um sorry, I don't want to cut you off, but I I Go feel a, a lot of the same things that Trevor felt. Um and from an early point in my career, I felt like because of the route that I took to get to the big leagues, I think I had a different perspective on it. And I felt incredibly lucky to have gotten to that point. And I wanted people to know or I wanted to convey at least how appreciative I was of the opportunity to play major league baseball. Um, I felt at times, I felt like a fan that like won some sort of contest to play in the major leagues. Like I was such a, I loved, I, since I was a kid, I loved learning about baseball history. I loved playing baseball and like, Oh my gosh, like I did it. Like I got here and I wanted 
it, it was especially poignant for me because like my introduction to baseball was going to A's games at the Coliseum as a little kid. And, you know, 20 years later, I got to put on the green and gold and wear the white cleats in the Coliseum. And um, I was really young when I was going to games. I was like four or five. Um, so like I have memories of it, but like, you know, um, if that full circle meant a lot to me, the full circle moment meant a lot to me. And I didn't want to let the fans down, like Trevor said. So, but I also wanted them to know kind of who I was, humanize myself a little bit. I thought, I think that's one thing that athletes can use social media to do is, you know, show a bit of themselves that fans might not see in a post-game interview. Um, whether it's your interests outside the field, your hobbies, your family, uh, what do you like to do when you're not playing baseball? Um, the problem that arises from that of showing that side of yourself is, you know, you blow a game as a reliever, there's no gray area. So you blow a game and it's like, well, you should, you shouldn't read so many, you shouldn't read books or stop going to a bookstore. Like you need to practice pitching more. And it's like, my, it's like my dude, I'm not a baseball robot. Like I need balance in my life. Like I need, no one's more upset about it than me. Um, yeah. trust me, like walking into a clubhouse after you blow a game and you got to look at your teammates in the, in the eye and you got to hold your head up and they just grinded it out for three hours and gave you the lead. All you had to do is get three outs and you couldn't get it done for whatever reason you couldn't get it done. Like that's a horrible feeling. That is an empty yeah. feeling. And like um, as a professional, you learn to deal with that and put it in its proper place. And that's why I always felt like, when I was approached by the media after, you know, blowing a save or losing a game, like I owed it to the fans to explain thoroughly, like what was going through my head? What did I think went wrong? Um, what was I going to do to fix it uh, and turn the page and move forward? Um, and not just, you know, give a little bit more than the stock cliche answers of, you know, that's baseball, you know, mm -hmm. like um, I wanted fans to understand that I was in this with them. Um, I, I wanted a championship as much as they did. Um, and like Trevor, there were several times where I got hit up on Venmo to, uh, <laughs> cover, cover someone's losses after a bet. Um, I do think, I do think MLB's partner partnerships with gambling houses has changed fandom in a very real way. And players have started to feel that in their mentions, um, on social media as well. Wow. Never thought of that before. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Can I can I take uh, take that off on a slightly different topic about for MLB's partnership with gambling houses? So sure, this course. is something that um, I wrote about in um, in the book in the Major League Base uh, Major League Rebels book. Major League Baseball owns a sweatshop in Costa Rica. Costa Rica, where all the, the Rawlings the Rawlings sweatshop. Yeah, all the baseballs over a million baseballs are all made. For major league players it's 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 a monopoly and it's a sweatshop and um it used to be owned by just rawlings and then about i think five or six or seven years ago the uh mlb and the owner of the padres bought a uh, quarter share of rawlings so literally major league baseball owns a sweatshop and it would take chump change for Major League Baseball to improve the conditions of the workers in this little town called uh, Turiabla, uh, Costa Rica, where there's about five or 600 workers that make the baseballs, which is the 
the symbol of the sport. And they're treated, you know, like anybody else in a sweatshop. And it's very detailed work. They get a lot of uh, carpal tunnel syndrome because of the nature of sewing a baseball. And once they get too old to do that, they get fired. And, and they're in this little village where there aren't that many uh, jobs. And it would be, you know, it would be so easy for Major League Baseball to fix this. And um, I had one conversation when I was in Boston about two years ago. And through mutual friends, I got to talk to Chaim Bloom, who was then the general manager of the Red Sox. And so, you know, this is my opportunity to ask a high executive. So I told him about that. Uh, and he said he didn't know anything about it, which I found hard to believe. But all right. So uh, and then I sent him some stuff about it. And of course, nothing happened. And of course, he was just fired. But um, so what do you think what it, it would take to get Major League Baseball, the owners, the, almost all of them were billionaires, to uh, have to deal with the situation of the exploitation of these five, six hundred workers that are making the baseball itself for for Major League Baseball. I think from I think a player's it's, perspective, it's, go ahead, Sean. Go. I, I think it's got to start with with the union. Um, and that feels like the obvious answer, but like um, it, you know, I think uh, Peter in, in the excerpt from your book, in the same excerpt from your book, you go on to talk about uh, the the new era workers uh the union workers at the new era factory in in upstate new york that were let go um in favor of cheaper unorganized labor in florida um to make the on-field hats uh for major league baseball players um i think um that was something that my wife and i tried really hard to sound the alarm on um and i'm proud of the work we did on it um but i also didn't think that um, our union did enough um, and no other players said anything about it. Um, and um, uh, I think our, our uniforms are the uniforms that major league players wear are still union made yeah. um, by a factory in Pennsylvania. Yes. But like, but I, I, in general, I think one of the next steps for our union needs to be fostering better solidarity with, uh, workers around the game and that goes not just the garment workers that make the hats and the uniforms and um, the hotel workers, transportation workers. I mean, even like teamsters who are delivering boxes probably of these baseballs to, to, to the fields uh, all across the United States and Canada. Um, uh, but like, I think it's a stain on our game that so much of the equipment that we use um, you all in this excerpt, you also mentioned some <clears> of the <throat> other uh, brands, Nike, Adidas, you know, uh, new balance, the, the manufacturers that make the footwear and, and, and stuff like that. They fall into this category of sweatshop labor as well, when it comes to manufacturing the equipment that we use to play the game. And, that's the kind of when we talk about labor issues and, and the socioeconomics in in baseball, even the politics in baseball, that's the exploited labor class that props up this 12. I think it's up to 12 billion dollar a year industry of you know Major League Baseball. And I think it's also important to note that like 
when it comes to, um, you know, these issues, I think, I think in your piece, you said they make less than $2 a day, right? Like, um, I mean, major league baseball bought the factory, right. And they told the players that they were doing this so that, uh, they would have more of a hand in the manufacturing process. They could get the balls more consistent and, and to specification, um, because they were actually, they were saying we're going away from manual hand labor and we're going to start using more machinery to make the baseballs. So they'll be within range more consistently. And we've seen the way the baseballs play in the last five years. It's been different every year. Um, they haven't been able to get it right. They lied about it constantly. And now we find out, well, this has been, Peter, to your credit, this has been on your radar. I think you first wrote about this in 1999, early 2000s. Yeah. Like we, that was, <laughs> that was conveniently left out when they told us uh, that MLB, when MLB told us that they acquired Rawlings, that um, they were paying poverty wages to people um, in Costa Rica to make the baseballs. Are you still active in the in the union as after retiring, or do they allow? I haven't been. I mean, I only retired like a month or two ago. Yeah. So, um, but I do want to find out if there's room. In you there can be too. if you want to be, I guess. Right? I mean, I honestly don't know. Like, I think like I'm not obviously a dues paying member anymore, but like, yeah. um, I think I can continue to correspond with them and, and talk yeah. with them about things. It's the same line of thinking, right, where the, the Diamondbacks cross the picket line in the playoffs uh, in L.A. Uh, at a hotel. And this is the second time that we've seen a team do this in the last, I think, seven years. The the, the Yankees did it in Boston, uh, I think in 2018. Yeah, the Dodgers um, did it in Boston also. The Dodgers did it too? Yeah. So we've seen this three times now? Yeah. And, and like, listen, if, if, if Lionel Messi can convince – you know the Miami Inter Miami not to not to use that hotel in LA um, to support the workers. Um, a guy that's not even from our country that is richer than God that does not care about money. Like I don't know, maybe it logistically was a little bit easier because the soccer team might not travel with as many people as a baseball team. I don't know. I don't really don't care. But like um, that's three times now that I know of that. Um, you know, we've crossed the picket line. And in this case, I think it was a, it was a, uh, it was a boycott, right? They were asking people yeah. to boycott the hotel. Which because was on they strike. Were... Yeah. yeah. Right. So yeah, Walter Ruther, the, the great uh, legendary organizer and leader of the United Auto Workers in the forties, fifties and sixties said, he said, he said, the easy part is, is organizing them workers. He says, the hard part is unionizing them. And uh, I think it was an interesting observation because you can get people organized, but then making them sort of feel like they are, are, are union members and, and know what that means, which Marvin Miller uh, really understood. He came out of the steelworkers is a diff is a different kind of thing. You know, uh, I mean, I, I'm happy that Marcus Simeon and and Lindor, the Mets are, are sort of part of the the union hierarchy. I guess they're they're active yeah, leadership members because you know that tells the younger people that there there's uh, significance in this and importance in this. I think I hope. Yeah, but what's what's really interesting is I was trying to get inside the head of Kelly and I wrote a bunch of articles about about the players crossing the picket lines in Boston and 
and I wrote something uh, and about in in LA during the this strike that's still going on, the hotel workers strike. And so you've got these guys who are the player reps, right? They're they're like shop stewards in right. you know, in the union. And and it's not their fault. It's the fault of the teams that make the hotel reservations and then under pressure don't do anything. But they didn't, you know, I thought it would have been at least helpful if one or two of the player reps spent 20 minutes on the picket line outside the hotels simply, you know, expressing solidarity with the hotel workers. I mean, I know they had to play the game and that's right. what they're mostly focused on. And right. you know, nobody wants to take their time away. But it wouldn't have taken a whole lot of time and effort for the these union reps to do that yeah. and uh, and send a signal to the larger public and to the hotel workers themselves, most of whom are are uh, immigrants, that you know we stand with you. And um, yeah, and Tony and Tony Clark led led the en entrance of the, the Players Association into the AFL CIO, which right. never yeah. never happened before. Right. I mean, that's kind of fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, and these these workers um, at the hotel in LA um, were um, their unions unite here, which is one yes. of the most powerful unions in the country. Um, hospitality workers mostly um, they represent, uh, for for instance, unite here represents the workers at at Nats Park here in DC. Yeah. Um, but like, um, you know, I think that's the next step that our union needs to take, it, it, fostering the solidarity so it's at a point where there's communication between the unions and they can give the diamondbacks for in this example they can give the diamondback players um or the the union themselves and they can send the message out to the players you know that there's a boycott we've we've called for a boycott of this hotel we're striking um uh, please don't cross the picket line and Yes, there are real logistics in play here. Where are you going to find 60 hotel rooms uh, on short notice? Because the Diamondbacks didn't know where they were playing until the very last day of the season. For them, it came down to the very last day of the season. There so were that, two unionized hotels in L.A. that had already settled. Right. And they could have stayed there, and there was room to stay there. But And remember who owns the Diamondbacks, right, which is uh, yeah. you know, Ken Kendricks, who's a right-wing yeah. Trumper. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I just I wish I would love to see a mechanism in place that the union can put in, whether it's through the collective bargaining agreement or a one off negotiation where there's never a case where they would cross the picket line yeah. um, and, and they can they can renegotiate the hotel or they can split the group up. There's probably they probably need roughly 60 rooms, maybe more than that for a playoff series. Um, the traveling party is usually a little bit bigger in the yeah. playoffs. Um but um, even if it means you have to split up into two or three different hotels, um, that you're not going to put the players in that position. But I also think going back uh, to the to the other point, like that solidarity also has to be um, instilled into the players. Kelly, when you were talking about um, the auto workers and you know what it means to actually be a part of a union, you're not just fighting for your brothers in the union um you're actually uh, you you're a part of this organized workforce across the country 
And that with that comes a responsibility to use the protections that you have to pr- help to protect other people that are fighting for those same protections. And yeah, um, I think we lose sight of that sometimes because we do have a lot of solidarity within our ranks. Um, we, we, that is, it was very clear during the lockout um, in uh, before 22. Um, but when it comes to understanding our platform as one of the biggest unions in the country and that we we need to use that to work with the other unions that help our game especially especially the ones that help our game um and and advocate for those workers as well even if like peter said it's just 20 minutes on the picket line it's a statement it's the player rep standing up and 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 talking to the media outside of the hotel or something um you know there needs to be that that solidarity yeah, that, that's what's yeah. that's what's fascinating about about uh, the, the the baseball players union because as you pointed out, all of the all of these guys are individuals. You know, they they got their own individual talent. I mean, you 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 obviously added the social dimension to to uh, how they how they got there and how they evolved. Coaches, teachers, you know, investment in public fields, stuff like that. But uh, so there's all these individualists who want to achieve for themselves individually. And they're part of one of the strongest unions that's ever existed in the country. I mean, yeah. I, I just find that kind of fascinating that, that, uh, you know, a bunch of them are evangelicals, whatever on, on the political spectrum. And they're part of this, this amazing, uh, union that, that does not break. I mean, they, they've, the owners have tried to break the, the players association 10 times or more, and they might try again. But they haven't broken. I mean, it's just fascinating uh, that dyna- that whole dynamic. It gives yeah. me hope that there is that solidarity from such a varied background, right? That we can come yeah. together over yeah. certain issues. Um, but you're right; it's fascinating to for me to watch. You know, every spring when we get, you know, our licensing checks um, that are that are that are handed out. Um, equally amongst the players it's divided equally so any any product that has a mlbpa license a video game a jersey that someone bought in a team store pack of cards um you know stuff like that um that all gets thrown into a pot um and that gets divvied up amongst equally from players so i get the same i get the same check that mike trout gets that mookie betts gets and i'm like and but players they love it. It's one of the highlights of of uh, of every spring because the union comes. We talk about where we're at as as a group, and um, we get a nice little check. And it's um, I mean, I'm, and I'm sitting there, and I'm like, I'm like, this is this is socialism. You guys like this? Like this is sick. <laughs> like I just got I just got the. There's no way people bought enough jerseys. Mike Trout is subsidizing you. Yeah. right for me to get the, the the comma in this check right like this is this is a five-figure check that i just got there's no way people bought more than five of my jerseys last year but because of the way that the union is set up um that's how it works and we all have an equal voice in the union yeah. we're all able to to talk about the issues and and yeah. join the meetings and stuff like that and and i'm like oh okay and all, it's, all just, good- it's funny all these billionaire owners tried to, you know, for 30 years, they tried to keep Marvin Miller out of the Hall of Fame. Right. Because yeah, they didn't I mean, want people to, to, to you know, he, he was not their friend. And now that and now and for 30 years, 20 years now or so more, they've kept Kurt Flood out of the Hall of Fame. He should be in there, too. 
Absolutely. Yeah, we had that campaign flood the hall. Remember, Trevor? Did you get those yeah. T-shirts? Where? Yeah. Um, yeah, I remember when my brother was a player rep for the Houston Astros. He, the first thing he did was he he bought twenty five volumes of of Miller's autobiography and gave it to the his teammates. That's you know, awesome. That's, re- that's reinforcing awesome. the that's idea that okay, learn anything. learn your history. Learn your history. Here. Right. Yeah. Right. Learn about what's come before you. When you I think get when you get that check, <laughs> when you get that check from all the all the sales, the cards and shirts. Learn why. Yeah, understand who's responsible. I think we've all touched on it, and I know we're way over time, but I just wanted to say, like, I think that's the next step for what I would like to see out of our union, right? We joined the AFL-CIO. We, they, um, they expanded the umbrella to minor leaguers to include 5,000 minor leaguers. It's one of the strongest um, unions in all of America. It's definitely the strongest of the four major American sports, I think. I think it, Tony is the longest tenured director of those unions. I think he has a real leadership, um, a, a real special opportunity to be a leader in the labor landscape at large. And that's, um, like Sean said, I think that's something I'd, I'd like to see uh, the union be more involved in. Yeah, yeah I, I really, I, really appreciated talking to you guys. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, yeah great. The whole, I almost hate to cut this off. I've, I've taken a back seat for the past hour and change because I it's just having four of the most interesting and thoughtful people around baseball talk. It's almost hard not to get lost in it, but I'm glad that this was able to happen. And this podcast exists to make this conversation a reality. Uh, I enjoyed it so much. Thank you, Peter and Kelly for coming on really, really. Uh, yeah, and, and, and show, show us how we can, how we can spread it around and help you guys and do, do whatever we can to help you. Yeah. Are you guys, yeah, is there anything you guys are working on or that's been out that you want to plug at the end here? Uh, well, people could buy my books, <laughs> Major League Rebels and Baseball Rebels, if they want to know the history of the, the the movements for social justice inside baseball and how baseball connected to the those movements outside the sport. So there's a plug. Hell yeah. Hell yeah, that counts. Yeah. I just, I just, I just purchased the the web domains like Major League Oddballs, and uh, I'd like to do a documentary about uh, Major League Oddballs. That maybe could be maybe awesome. Rebels too. And there's there's that also a, awesome. a new book out called uh, "There's No Crying in Baseball" about the history of uh, women in baseball. And Kelly's a uh, a major. He's quoted uh, and referred to quite a bit in that in that book because it's about the movie. It's about the making of the movie, basically. Okay. And uh, it's a really good it's a really good book called No Crying in Baseball. And because Kelly played such an instrumental role in making it all happen, he's uh, you know he's a a star of the book too. So that's another book that. people can can buy. Okay. Can you guys mention your social media handles as well? Because um, we want people to be able to read the the work that you guys put out. Well, people could join my Facebook page. There we go. Peter Dreyer, D-R-E-I-E-R. Um, I don't do that much tweeting or Xing, I guess it's called now. <laughs> you have to get the terminology right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I do some. I post my, my things I write on uh, uh, on on X, um, although there's a whole movement now to get people off of X because of who owns it. But um, anyway, but the best place if you want to see what I write and the stuff that I write with Kelly, who's been 
you know, we've been writing together for what now? It's almost 30 years. Oh, it's pretty yeah, amazing. Yeah. Are we that old? Oh. Uh, so, um, yeah. So the, anyway, and Kelly's got a Facebook page too. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, I, 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 YouTube, I mean, uh, God, what is my, what is, what is my Twitter handle at, at K Candel might be, um, but, uh, the, you know, I do a lot of films about workers, working class people, uh, their stories. So on, I have a YouTube, YouTube channel, and a Vimeo a site that sort of regular, regular working people stories and union stories, that kind of stuff. Kelly made this amazing documentary about the the construction workers who were um, who were building the Wilshire Grand uh, Hotel in L.A. and uh, called Heads Hearts and what else Hands Hands Heads Hearts and Hands and um, and he actually put a camera on his back and went up to the top you know when they were topping off oh the, my gosh. the hotel what was it 50 the uh, the uh, the crane on top of the crane 50 oh stories my gosh. was it 50 that was, stories it was it was uh, uh, I'm, claust I'm claustrophobic and I don't like heights but uh, anything for the shot but <laughs> oh my gosh yeah kelly and i were once in jail together and uh, and his claustrophobia got the better you've of you've got him. to tell him why though peter we, we you can't leave we, that we hand. got arrested uh, at a at a uh, a protest uh, demonstration for the hotel workers, for Local 11 of Unite Here, yeah. about 10, oh, 10 or 12 gosh. years ago. And we were both in the same cell with about five or six other people. And Kelly was sweating like bullets. It was pretty amazing. <laughs> I was happy to get out of there, that's for sure. Yeah. And, then, and, then he, and, then he, and then he goes up to the, the 50th floor of this hotel, you know, on a crane with a camera on his back, you know. <laughs> I couldn't believe he did that, but I would like, I would have gone close to that. It was pretty. That's like gross. Soloed it, just started climbing it like early in the morning. No one gave you like there's no permit. Uh, yeah, they have the they have these things that that go over from like if if it's fifty stories high, they have a thing at uh, a, a ramp at at forty stories. Like uh, okay. you got to walk across <laughs> the ramp to get to the crane, so it's you know it's, it's not not for the the weak of heart. Let me tell you, no that. sir, <laughs> no sir, yeah. But uh, so everybody needs to watch. Everybody needs to watch that documentary. So Kelly's uh, uh, conquering of his fear of heights was not in vain. We need yeah, to see yeah. that shot. We need hand. to see that shot. Everybody makes their sacrifices. That's beautiful. But yeah, I appreciate you guys' work too, and you know everything that you've done. Yeah, uh, really admire admire you guys. Yeah, I I'll, appreciate that, Trevor. What are you? What, uh, what are both? What are you both doing now? I mean, in terms of well, I like one of your articles. You know, basically a cup of coffee. I never reached arbitration, and I don't have the financial security to retire on on baseball. So <clears throat> I found a job. I'm working forty to fifty hours a week uh, in San Francisco. I live in the San Francisco Bay Area. That takes most of my time, and I'm raising uh, my three year old daughter and my one year old son, and just trying to to get by. Get birthday by. yesterday, right? Yeah, my son's birthday yesterday turned one. Happy birthday! Wow! Shout out, Calvin. We Don't love Calvin. Calvin. Folks. We love Calvin. I am. Uh, I am so newly retired that I, I'm not sure what's next for me yet. Um, uh, ultimately, a knee injury is what ended my career, and I've had um, I've had two knee surgeries since um, the beginning of September uh, to mm -hmm. get that taken care of. So most of my time is taken up by elevating my leg on the couch and going to physical therapy mm -hmm. um, while I 
you know, continue to think through um, what I want to do next. I'd say writing a memoir would be good. Uh, I, I was going to say the exact same thing. Would you be an interesting find, book. Find somebody to help you. Uh, you maybe you don't need help because you're a good writer, probably. But but to you know, write writing everything you've said today. I was thinking that should be in a book. <laughs> really, <laughs> really, seriously. You know, think about all the think about all the dumbass athletes that write their memoirs have nothing to say, right? And both of you guys have something to say, you know, and it would be great to to put it between uh, covers and it would sell. I guarantee you it would sell. You know, That's a, uh, you I, I honestly, you heard it here I'm first. honestly, <laughs> I've never thought about it, but um, nobody's ever approached you about writing your memoir. No, no. Well, they should, we should talk about that. That's we'll <laughs> now someone Deep has, Peter, do you know time. anybody? Do you know anybody that's ever written a book? <laughs> I, I'm not, you need somebody you know well you can trust. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, like Dave Zarin, who I've written with, you know, he he does a lot of the, you know, as told to by Dave Zarin, but he could do that. I mean, I met Dave before. He's a DC guy. Yeah. So, yeah. but somebody, you know, you both have great stories to tell. And you can be in my Major League Oddballs film. I you know what, Kelly? Yeah. I don't think oddballs is the right word. Well, well oddballs. Maybe for oddballs, Sean. He's a little odd. You know. Major League Rebels. I don't know. Yeah, well, Rebels. <laughs> that's why I that's why the books are called Rebels. But, they're, but, they're, but left-handed pitchers are odd. I mean, that's that's well known. Kelly, I was a left-handed uh, pitcher. You think I love odd? our lefty pitchers? <laughs> yeah. No, so, Kelly, I was a left-handed pitcher. That's what I'm saying. I mean, I, I think that's a badge of honor. Like as a yeah. lefty, a lefty reliever, especially like I took full advantage of you know the license to be a little bit quirky and different. So yeah, yeah exactly. I, I appreciated the freedom that came with that. Yeah. Right. Well, we didn't have we didn't have specialized relievers and starters back then, but um, when I was in college, but it was definitely you know an honor to be called a lefty. You know, yeah. for me, yeah. but. Uh, but being called an oddball, I don't think I'd want that, Kelly. So. <laughs> I would wear it with a badge of honor, Kelly. So all right, all right. I see. There I'm not. Go. I'm not going to question Kelly's artistic vision. Same as Casey. I'd say Bill Lee is a a bit of an oddball. Although, yeah, I think he's a big oddball. Right? John hasn't even entered his retirement crank phase yet. He has a <laughs> lot of oddballing to do over the next few years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Hey Richard, I got a question for you. Can, uh, I know this is a podcast, so it's going to be all um, audio, right? But is can you send us the video of this? Do you have that? Yeah, when I uh, when I download this after it's over, it yeah. sends me the audio and the video, so I could send that to you yeah. probably within the hour. Yeah, and you just cut it up and and put it in the podcast. Is that how it how it works? Uh, I just send out the audio version. I don't do any video. But no, I'd, I mean, love to, I'd love to have a copy of the video. This is like, you know. Yeah, that's fun. Fun. That's yeah. fun. Yeah, I'll definitely send it over to you. And for the people listening in the description with all of our social media handles, uh, the articles that Kelly and Peter sent to the three of us to prepare for this, I'll put all of them into a Google Doc. And so everyone who listens could go through it. And I think 
we all three of us, I speak for us when we say we recommend every single article in that document from Ken Caminiti to unionization to everything in between. We didn't uh, even talk about Carlos Delgado, an absolute legend. We didn't even talk legend. about him. Legend. There's I'm never enough. You time. guys, you guys read this, read some of the stuff. That was amazing. Yeah, I, at least I couldn't stop. I started from the top and I kept going. That's him. There he, there is. There he is. He's on the cover. Cover boy for for the listeners. Uh, Peter just held up a copy of uh, his book. Major. That's Major League Rebels. Yeah. Um, and uh, there's a beautiful photo of Carlos Delgado on the cover, and. I don't know if we want to tell them why we love Carlos Delgado so much, or we should make them pick up the book. Uh, go buy the uh, book teaser. from the local bookstore and, book. and, and read all about him. Yeah. Also, yeah, Mets he... legend Carlos Delgado. It always comes back to the Mets, whether you like it or not. <laughs> he was, he was, you know, we, yeah. This is a teaser. He was very outspoken uh, about uh, lots of issues, and uh, and he never, he never backed down. And and he still was an all star, <laughs> you know. And he has a Hall of Fame case. Like I don't know if he'll ever get in, but put him in too. Yeah, put him in. Yeah, he, he absolutely has a Hall of Fame case. Yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah, but uh, on behalf of Sean, Trevor, Peter, Kelly, and myself, thanks for coming back. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this conversation. And we'll see you next time with on staff guests with more special guests and your favorite hosts.